This podcast is a Tucker Media production. For more information, head to tuckermedia.com.au. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates Podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. I know it's been a little while between drinks, but there's been a few little things happening in the background to stop me from doing this on a regular basis, namely moving house, having another child, and spending my first full season with the ABC Grandstand NRL team. So that's been really exciting from my point of view. I thought I'd take a little bit of a different tact with this podcast for the next little series of interviews, and that will be to interview some of the people that I worked with on the ABC Grandstand NRL team this year. So in the next couple of weeks, you'll hear from people like Dean Hallitow, Andrew Ryan, Matthew Elliott, and Ruan Sims. It'll be a great little chat to hear from those people in terms of how they find doing the media work as opposed to what they ordinarily would do, and that is playing football or coaching football. So I really hope you enjoy this little series of chats. We'll start off with Dean Hallitow, a guy who played for the West Tigers and Canterbury in the NRL, represented New Zealand as well on an international front and uh, has made his way into the media this year after retiring at the end of 2016. Dean is one of the nicest humans you'll ever meet, so I really hope you enjoy this chat. Dean Hallitow, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. How good. Awesome to actually be sitting with you and having a conversation over some microphones. Absolutely. Now, as I sort of mentioned in the intro, I want to take a bit of a different tact with this and discuss media with people that didn't necessarily grow up in media. And you've just spent your first season with the ABC Grandstand Rugby League team. How was it for you? Uh, It was actually really enjoyable, surprisingly, uh, for myself. Like you said, I didn't grow up in media. I didn't play through my career and think too much about media. I obviously did the interview after after the game or um, at training when we had our media commitments there. Like I was happy to partake in that, but I never had the ambition. And uh, the opportunity came up last year when Andrew Moore gave me a call and asked if I'd like to be involved with the team. And it sounded exciting. It sounded like a good opportunity. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. I got to watch footy and, and fall in love with it again. It's amazing you sort of say that, that it wasn't something kind of on your radar, but then when Andrew mentioned it to you, you were excited by the prospect of, of getting involved. What was it exactly that you thought you could add to a role like you were given? I mean, basically, I guess to paint the picture for people, Dean was doing uh, Friday nights for us on on the sideline as well as Sunday and it involved in a lot of pregame shows. And that also meant uh, a few Saturdays when Ruan Sims, who joined the team this year, was, was unavailable. So... What was your initial thoughts about how you would approach it and how you would, I guess, how you would fit in and how you would like it? Um, I, I guess uh, when, you, when you're playing footy, like a lot of players probably think, I'll retire from football, end up in a media job, and it'll be so cushy and a nice, easy, smooth transition. And that sort of pops up every now and then in people's minds. But I kind of never really set myself up for that. I thought, I'm going to finish football, find a job, um, and if some media stuff came along, then I'd, I'd, I'd take it up, but I didn't actively pursue it. And as you said, I got that tap on the shoulder, that call from Andrew and um, the opportunity to, to come and do this. And then when I said yes, it was more about the – I thought how good I can get into the media and um, sort of give my point of view on, on, on the sport that I love uh, and, and get paid for it. So what a what a nice fit, what a 
a good way to earn extra income on top of what I was doing for a, a nine to five. And then as it came closer, I was thinking, oh, actually, how am I going to, I've never done this before. How am I going to actually do it when it, when I have to sit down and, um, on the sideline and, and watch a game and make constructive comments about what I'm, what I'm watching. So I was actually a bit nervous to start the year. And, um, we did that little practice run up in, um, Newcastle for the, for the All-Stars game. And I think, um, I sat down with Andrew and with, and with Bobcat, with Andrew Ryan and, um, just kind of got a bit of a feel about how it would flow, how it would work. And I guess that's a good thing with Maury. He just throws, he, he gets a really good feel of, of how I can contribute and, and the timing of when I come in and when I go out and, and sort of what I offer. It made it really easy. Like I just kind of piggybacked off the back of what he was doing. And, um, so I was probably my approach was just trusting him, trusting the, the guys in the, in the commentary box and, and yourself about, what I'd have to what I'd have to do when I was uh, offering something up. It was funny you mentioned that Newcastle game. We'd obviously Andrew and I had obviously discussed having you on board, and we'd sort of seen that as a, a great opportunity to sort of you know blend you in without sort of I guess too much pressure of like a, a serious NRL game as it were. And I remember Andrew ringing me straight away after the game, and I just said to him before he could say anything, I said. We've got our guy. Like, so, because just based on the way that you handled that situation, it's not something that everybody can do and all ex players can do. So, it's kind of, you need to be able to express yourself in a really quick fashion and sort of add some insight in terms of what's happening in the game. And that's how the best media performers work. And I mean, not everybody comes into it and smashes it out of the park. Some people start at a, a low base get gradually better and then get really good at it and then others to sort of you know that they're not going to be as well equipped as perhaps you were to handle that situation. So take me through what you were feeling like those first couple of weeks when you were first you know, brought into that because essentially you're giving up a playing career the season before so you're still mates with a lot of these guys. Did you have a, a process in your mind in terms of you didn't want to be too controversial or you didn't want to be too critical of, of players? How did you sort of adapt to that style of things? Because ultimately what we want from you is we want your knowledge and if you're opinionated, that's also great, but we understand that there's a fine line for you in terms of just being recently retired as well. There's two two parts to that. Yes, recently retired, so I've, I've got a relationship with a lot of guys still playing the game. They're, they're, I consider a lot of them close mates of mine, so... I'm probably, I probably err on the side of caution in terms of being critical. It's easy to call something for what it is. I, I, I sort of kept that back in the back of my mind. If there's a poor pass, it's a poor pass. The player that's made the mistake will put their hand up and say that that's a part of being a, a, an arrow footballer is being able to be accountable for your mistakes. So, um, I was able to call things for what they were. Uh, and in terms of being opinionated, I don't think I had to be. If I'm offering, um, that football knowledge or that insight in, in a way where, it's clear for a listener to say, well, he made this mistake because of whatever led up to it or um, the try, whatever happens. If I can just call it the way it is, then I think I'm getting my point across well enough for, for the listeners. Um, and then also there's the fact that I, I work in my nine-to-five role with a lot of the players. So I think it's really important that I, I have a an opinion that, calls it for what it is, but isn't too scathing of players because I have to have a relationship with them off the field. They have to trust me. So it was a hard it was a hard line to walk sometimes, especially when 
uh, if we're doing a pregame show and there's been some behavioural incidences through the through the week or um, something controversial, it's it's pretty hard for me to to put my um, to be too critical or to put a really strong opinion on things when I've at some point maybe have to support uh, a player, you know, in the, in the well-being education space with my nine to five role. So that was an ongoing thing that I had to try and try and balance about what um, what's going to give you guys some good content for the show and for for the listeners, but is also going to bear in mind that the players as people, because I, I work closely with them and and I have that empathy for them when when something does go wrong. I guess there was no better illustration of that early in the season when the whole Tim Simona thing came out. Um, you being a former teammate of him at the the West Tigers, and then Andrew pretty much putting you on the spot on the Sunday, I do recall, like at, at Campbelltown, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you had people within the ABC looking to get you to comment on TV and, and things like that as well. So it was a pretty early baptism of fire in terms of separating that, I guess, friendship and also stepping into your role as a, as a commentator. Is that when you sort of thought, oh, hang on, this is a bit serious now, like I, I, I don't know where I kind of fit and you had to sort of straddle both those areas of, of being at that time, you were also empo- employed by the I West was, Tigers, yeah. and you had this welfare and education thing with the NRL, but also employed in the the commentary position. So yeah. that must have been tough early doors. Yeah, it was, and and I've got to give a lot of credit to Andrew because he didn't go too hard with his questioning to me about it because he knew one I had a role with the club, and he knew I was a former teammate of Tim. So um, when when that came up, you're right, it was a Sunday. I hadn't read the paper that morning. I literally got to the game and I got a phone call about it and the phone call was someone from, from ABC asking if I'd make comment on TV and I was like, I don't even know what I'm commenting on and then I've come up at a quick read through the paper uh, literally 10 minutes before we went on air and uh, I was grateful that Andrew didn't go hard at me for it and um, and I respect him for that. But it was it was difficult. Because I had my, own, I was still processing the information I got myself, and as a former teammate, I was disappointed, obviously, um, and, and and a little bit angry. But I had to quickly take that that hat off and put the the wellbeing and education hat on, and, and I was thinking about, well, he's going to be uh, he's going to be hurting more than anyone else at the moment. Uh, I know he's done the wrong thing, but um, he's going to need help to get through that, and that's a part of my other role. So uh, I think it's something that through the year I felt that Andrew. And Matthew were both good at letting me letting me sit on the sideline for some things that uh, they knew that I probably couldn't comment too much on, or else put my own professional career at risk. So um, I was grateful for that. Um, and like you said, it was a point where I guess I realised that there's going to be a need at some point for me to make a comment, but it's how how best I do that where I'm, I'm satisfying my my other employer, uh, but still doing a good job for for the ABC. How did you find the two tasks that you had to do? Like I mentioned, during game time, you're on the sideline and then when the pregame show is on, you're there to take talkback callers, be part of the interviews and also offer a comment on issues in the game. I mean, what did you find the most challenging parts of each division of, of that particular role? All right, so on the field, on the, sitting on the sideline, the, the hardest thing is to um, to keep up with the play. It's different sitting down on the sideline to sitting up in the box and in the box you get such a, a good bird's eye view of what's going on. Um, at times we didn't get replays on the big screen. So if I missed a part of a try or a lead up to a try and we didn't get the 
the replay on the screen before the guys threw down to me, I was sometimes half guessing what was what had happened in the lead up to the try, or I've got to buy a bit of time till I can get to that point. Uh, so it was just the pace, I guess, on the side of trying to keep up and then trying to off- offer a different point of view after it gone th- from Andrew to Maddie and then down to me. And, and we know Andrew's called the game forever and a day and, and, and knows the game so well for a guy that never played at the elite level. And then you've got Matthew who coached and played at the elite level uh, who offers even more um, depth of, of what's just unfolded. And then throw to me who just finished the game last year. I know I'm fresh out of it, but um, in, in, a, in a really – new space. I found it hard at sometimes to try and give a different perspective on what had just happened. Um, the pre-game shows, they were lots of fun talking about different things in the game and sitting up next to the guys in the box and and, and just talking footy and, and, and taking calls was, was comfortable because one, I could get some uh, sort of indication from, from Andrew, from Matty or from Bob Kettifers with him on when to jump in and when, when to say something, I can put my hand up and indicate when I felt like I could jump in. So it was easy to sort of, um, to get a bit of flow and, and feel like the right time when to jump in with things. And there was callers sometimes that I got a bit muddled and I didn't know what to say to them because <laughs> you get the one thing I noticed, there was a lot of repetitive calls over the course of the year about similar things that really for Scrums, me- Scrums, golden point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just got- And and for me, a lot of those things that, that came up are really innocuous for me in the game. Like I don't really think a lot of them. Like I know the play the ball can look messy at times and- um, traditionalists will want the play of the ball to be nice and neat. Fall, the ball's got to be struck by the foot, um, facing square. But I also don't mind the fact that sometimes we get a super fast play of the ball and the tempo of the game picks up from that. I like seeing fast games. I like active games. So um, uh, it didn't really bother me when people ring it up and say, oh, Andrew Fafita doesn't play the ball. He just steps over it or whoever. But it's funny that I, I did watch a few games where I just watched it closely and, and – 90% of the play the balls weren't proper play the balls, but like I said, the game the game itself was pretty fast. So dealing with those sorts of calls, I appreciate people's points of view on it, but um, some of them I was just like, oh, I don't really care about that at the moment, <laughs> like the, the play the ball or whatever. Um, but it was still it was, it was lots of fun, and getting 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 to talk to, to people that just loved the game was was really was really nice. You sort of mentioned before that you hadn't sort of read the the paper before the Tim Simona thing came out. When you're a footballer, I guess preparation's a really integral part of what you do each week before a game. What did you learn about that side of things in terms of, okay, watching games or, or at least catching the highlights because of the talkback callers are going to raise a particular issue um, if we've got an interview coming up with a, a certain player? Um, the preparation going into a role such as the pre-game show, what did you sort of learn about that side of things? Yeah, well, yeah, preparation. If I if I missed games on a Saturday night going into a Sunday show, I, I'd always watch the replays when I got up in the morning and try and um, read as much uh, summaries of the game as I could so that I was fairly up to date with what had gone on. If there was ever any sort of controversial talking points, I'd, I'd try and find those in the game as well so I could offer some insight into that. Um, there was times when I've... You know, I've got, I had a pretty full on year in terms of all my commitments. So there was times where I just got squeezed and I couldn't get in as much as I would want in terms of preparation. And when I did that, going into a Sunday show and having to try and catch up and play, you know, offer insight on the run was, was at times hard. So 
uh, yeah, much the same as getting ready for a game. If you, the, the better you prepare, the more preparation you, you, you get done, the better you perform. And I was, that's one thing I always was really critical of myself after a call. Like I'd, I found myself doing what I did in games. I'd, I'd sit there and think about, uh, the mistakes I made and, and I'd go over it in my head and, <laughs> and I always knew, I always knew what it was, you know, like even up until the grand final, like I was a bit rattled on grand final day. Like I felt like the day was really long and quite challenging and, and there was moments in that grand final where um, I got lost in the game a bit and then I was a bit fumbly with my words. And, and that was always something that I'd, I sort of appraised myself after every game. I'd sit there and think back and think about what I could have done better. And I was always asking for feedback early days so I could improve. I wanted to be as good as I could at it. Um, and, and for me, it was always when I flowed with the way I was talking, I offered really good points and I didn't try and make it up on the run. So that was when I felt really really good about my performance as a commentator i guess so like just adjusting to that in terms of what you mentioned before is just being able to watch something then have that memory recall and then articulate it but then being the for one of a better term third man in as you mentioned before at times that must have been like really difficult because you can have a thought when you're sitting on the sideline, I, I kind of think, and then someone else will take that thought or another two incidents will happen by the time you want to talk about the incident that you've just highlighted in your own mind. Like yeah. it must be really challenging from that point of view. Yeah, it is. And and, and I, I, I know that during the year and, and I'm aware of the fact that it was my first year doing it, but I know that there was times when I'd repeat something that had already been said or, or I'd, um, I'd make a point about something that had gone maybe two or three sets earlier, but I was a bit stuck. So, you know, I, I tried to keep something up my sleeve that was a little bit unique. And actually, something that I learned from, uh, um, from Matt Russell at the, at pay television, he said to me, he keeps a lot of quirky little stats that, um, the guys upstairs in the run of the game can't really pull on them because they don't have them in front of them. So he does a lot of research before games and pulls out just random, really random stats that no one else would, would really go looking for, but that are quite unique and quite quirky. And, and the listener might go, oh, well, that's pretty interesting. That so, um, if I could have some little stat like that up my sleeve about a certain player that was playing or, um, if I, during, during the game, if there's something that I've seen that I know wasn't going to be picked up by the guys upstairs, I'll just keep that up my sleeve and try and drop it in at some point just to, um, just to give the guys something different to, to think about, like tree lines and stuff. <laughs> I guess also there's also that relationship that you have with a number of players across the competition. So you're able to bring a storyline that Andrew or Matt may not necessarily have. So yeah. having you know played with a lot of the guys or knowing a lot of, about their, I don't know, junior clubs or, or how they came through the system or whatever the case may be, I mean, that was probably something that – you were able to use to your advantage. Yeah, and, and and also because of that, I often take an interest in the guys that I'm mates with and that I play with when something happens, like say they re-sign for however many years or um, you know something happens for them in, in their careers and I, I tend to be a bit more in tune with that. So if I'm calling a game that they're playing in, I can, that pretty much drops into my head straight away and I'll throw it out there. So, or just for instance, when... Um, Dale Finucane, I know a lot of these things are all common knowledge anyway, but Dale Finucane being from Bega, um, I know he played before the grand final, he'd already played in three grand finals and, uh, I know that he was a water boy at the dogs 
uh, a training when he came, first came down as a 17-year-old or whatever it was. So those little things I can sort of draw on, I guess, when, um, as you said, because I've got those relationships, I can, I can drop them in there and no one else would really know that stuff. One of the things that I enjoyed having in my role was to sit next to you on the, the sideline to give you a bit of a helping hand. I might drop the odd stat or I might go up to the benches and get injury information or anything like that. Was just your genuine excitement for being at games, like and and like you said before, just really getting into the game from the sideline, being so close to the action in terms of being able to sort of feel some of the hits and be able to look at the the skill um, of certain players like five ten meters away. Yeah. So that that's obviously something that like over the the year you found yourself enjoying immensely. Well, I guess from, from my point of view, that's how it looked. Yeah, well, it was, it was basically getting my footy fixed without getting the the hurt from a game afterwards. You know, like I was, as you said, we're so you're so close to the action. It's basically like we're we're sitting next to the bench a lot of the time. So, um, you know, I've sat on the bench as a player before, and uh, when you get up to go go on the field, there's a weird weird sensation. You sort of you get the call down from upstairs, you're getting ready, you're going to go on the field and you know once you cross the line, you're in the game, you're going to get hit, you're going to have to hit people and you've got that physicality. But sitting on the sideline, on the bench, you're that close to the physicality of the game um, but not having to cross the line and get into battle mode was was refreshing. And then, as you said, I got, bit, I got a bit excited this year when there'd be a big hit or a really nice play and I know you, you've been a, a passionate dog supporter whenever something happened in one of those games I was often hitting you because I know that you were riding it you know riding the performance uh, along with with the bench that was next to us and the boys out in the field so uh, I definitely got excited by watching the game up up close and and seeing the skill on display I think the game the way that players have come along in terms of their athleticism and the skill that they possess uh, since when even when I started playing is pretty awesome it's it's great to um, just to be able to get close and watch those guys perform. What about doing the on-field interviews after games? How was that for you to do? Like me as a producer, my role is to try and make things as balanced as possible. So as hard as it is speaking to somebody from the the losing side, you being a player yourself, I, I kind of get the the psyche of being that disappointed that you didn't actually win on the day. Was that difficult to do how did you sort of navigate that yeah it was hard I, I, the one that sticks out most for me is interviewing Tyson Frizzell after they just basically they lost to the Bulldogs in round 26 so they couldn't make the finals and just approaching him to actually talk to him and seeing the look on his face he had blood coming out his nose he was pretty battered and we know how hard he plays but um, just that disappointment and then going over to try and draw some responses out of him on where it all went wrong or you know like it's a, putting myself in his shoes. It, at that time, you're probably not thinking about where it all went wrong. You're just gutted that you didn't make the finals. And I've been in that position before. So uh, it was hard to, to go to, to a losing player and to try and get some responses from them. Josh McGuire was another one. I, I got him twice in the finals and both times they'd lost. And um, and he was gutted, you know, and, and it looked like he didn't want to talk to me, which he probably didn't. But um, that was that was a challenge because – like I said way back at the start, I'm trying to maintain relationships with the boys in my professional work, what I, what I do for the NRL. So trying to maintain that relationship where they're trusting of me and, and they, you know, they're not reluctant to open up to me, but then going on the field and asking questions after a loss, trying to draw stuff out of them, um, and not 
feeling like they're going to look at me like not so much the enemy, but like as as a journo. And and there's there's often a, a negative connotation around journos with footy players. So um, that was a challenge, but also I, I really enjoyed getting to talk to players that I normally wouldn't have talked to throughout my career, opposition players, uh, and really gaining another level of respect for them. The, the Melbourne boys, and I've said this before, the Melbourne boys, um, the Cooper Cronk, Billy Slater, and Cameron Smith, who are the big three, three of the best guys that have laced a boot in our game and will go down in history that way. Um, getting to talk to them after games was pretty cool, and I'd always hated them as, as opposition players because <laughs> they, were they, were, so good. they were just so good and they were so hard to beat. Actually, go back to Matty Russell. He showed me a stat for the player that I've played the most against in my career was Cameron Smith. Oh, really? He was my yeah, my most the, the opponent that I played against the most throughout my whole career, and my win percentage against him was twenty seven percent. So <laughs> I didn't have a very happy time playing against Cameron Smith, but um, getting to talk to him after games and getting some um, good responses out of him, I had a chuckle. My first game, first competition game was Bulldogs Melbourne. I interviewed him and. And I was more nervous about interviewing because I hadn't really done it that much. I was like, all right, now I'm interviewing Cameron Smith and what am I going to ask him, what am I going to ask him, thinking about the question that's going to come. And then when I finished, he he had a, a real big chuckle and he gave me a slap on the back like, hey, you're interviewing me after a game, how bizarre sort of thing. So <laughs> that was a pretty cool moment. Like I enjoyed that. Um, and interviewing in that, that warm-up match I had up at Newcastle, I got to interview Laurie Daly. Laurie Daly is one of my favourite players as a kid and – I got so much respect for him, and um, Maury directed me towards him over the headset after the game, and and he just like had a chat with me. And I was driving down back from Newcastle on the freeway, and I was just buzzing out that I interviewed Laurie Daly. Like it was, you know, little things like that. Cooper Cronk down in Wollongong, probably the best interview I've done all year, only because his answers were so thorough and so, so articulate, which he always does. Um, yeah, that that's what made those post matches really enjoyable. I guess the other part of it is learning the, for want of a better term, on-field etiquette when there's times there where it's quite a bit of a scramble in terms of everybody wants to get, I guess, the player of the game or the person that's, I guess, contributed the most if it may have been like a, a match-winning play, like a like a, a winning field goal or something like that. And you've got Channel 9, you've got Fox Sports, you've got 2GB, you've got Triple M and you've got us. And me being the competitive bugger that I am, jumping in and trying to grab that player for you at that time, whereas there's a certain stage where you've got to sort of allow players to sort of have respect between each other and, and shake hands. But then from a radio point of view, we might be sort of ending our coverage in two minutes, so we need to speak to a major player before the shadowy figure of Tony Chalmers comes over and taps us on the shoulder from Channel 9. What was that thing like? Because... I actually love that part at the end of the game, but gee, it's chaotic, isn't it? It is chaotic, and it was probably um, exaggerated in the semi-finals because there's so much going on. There's so many people on the field. There's photographers everywhere. The num- it seems like the number of people in the finals on the field probably three or four times as much during the season. So there's people everywhere. Like you said, that respectful element of, of letting the players shake hands I, and, and, again, taking myself back to being a player, um, I was often – Really, really conscious of the fact that you've got to acknowledge the opposition, go shake their hands and, and pay your respects. Um, so allowing the players the time to do that, but at the same time trying to get uh, some some voices on air before we close out the show, as you said, um, was something that I was also really mindful of. But um, I guess that was the beauty of having you there is that I didn't have to do that. 
So you just go grab, pinch someone out of <laughs> out of their procession of handshaking, and they'd come over and, and answer some questions. Um, and I and I found at times too, like if I could just grab someone's eyesight, a friend of mine, like a guy that that I'm mates with, if I could if, if I could grab, just catch their eye for a second, then often they'd they go, yeah, sweet. Like even if they didn't want to do it, they'd come over and just have a chat, you know. And um, I was lucky. Mitch Moses, his his manager, was my old manager as a player, so. His manager said to him, "If you if and this was after the the switch over to the Eels, he said, if you see Dino on the field, you got to look after him and go speak to him.' So he gave me a bit of a leg up there to make sure that. And and Mitch was great for me; like he'd always give me the time anyway. So um, those personal relationships go a long way to help getting sometimes getting players. I was going to say that, like, I mean, you must have been just really on the the cusp of okay, you don't want to abuse the friendship." that you have with these guys, but ultimately there's pressure from us for you to yeah. speak to certain individuals or whatever. I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, like I'm just a Neville and I'm grabbing a player, whereas you know them personally. So they're more yeah. likely to gravitate towards you than that they are me. Like none of them are like complete assholes and completely cut you off Like in terms of I'm talking from my perspective, but they're more reluctant if I try and, I guess, bridge the gap between um, myself and yourself yeah. in, in the in the player situation. Whereas if you've got the race relationship, or I think it's also just a pure respect thing for you because you're a guy that's recently retired. Obviously, had a high level of respect amongst your opponents, so they kind of see you, and it's not going to be as threatening as if, like you said before, it's just some journo asking yeah. them a question. Like I, there was, um, and that that is true. Like I. I the relationship I had with a lot of guys meant that um, they were probably a bit more comfortable having a, having a chat straight away or saying yes straight away. Um, and, and I was really careful with the way I did it. Like I'd ask, I'd, I'd, I wouldn't go and say, hey, come give me, come have a chat with me. Or, or I'd, I'd sort of look at them and then ask a question politely, Can, do you mind having a chat? And it wasn't often that I got cold-shouldered, so that was good. Um, and then I'd also thank, like, I'd be really thankful to the boys afterwards as well for their time, like, especially if it was a losing team. And, um, I made sure that I, I went out of my way to, to thank him for the chat. I actually text Paul Gallen after it was, uh, the game they beat Melbourne down in Melbourne, the, the, when it was pouring down rain and, uh, no umbrella on the sideline. I was on my pat, <laughs> but I, I interviewed him after the game and, and I, knowing that he works with, with Triple M, I thought, oh, maybe he won't, want to chat to ABC or whatever but as it turns out he didn't really care he just chat to anyone he's a good good fellow like that but I know Paul personally so I text him um, the next day I said thanks for the chat yesterday make me look good for for the guys at ABC and uh, and he was he was um, he was sweet with it you know he said thanks no all good anytime and yeah so I just sort of the guys that I knew personally that that I could reach out to afterwards and thank them for the for the chat I would um, especially after a loss one of the things that we got you to do as part of your, I guess, introduction or initiation to the team was give you your own segment, <laughs> <laughs> Hello Hallatow, um, which was wonderfully voiced in an introduction by your former teammate, Aaron Woods. What was that like to sort of, I guess, do some homework or, or come up with some content that was going to contribute to the show every week that went for 31 weeks. And and the thing was, it wasn't overall, uh, you know, overly serious. It was a combination of, yeah. of serious, I guess, from a sort of radio terminology, kind of plenty of light and shade. How did you, you, you find that? Uh, it was challenging because a lot of the times I was um, struggling to come up with, it's a long, it's early in the piece. I was like, yeah, I can come up with things weekly. That's sweet. But then 
as the season went on, I go, man, I've still got 15 weeks of content to, to try and come up with. <laughs> and it turned in, as we know, it turned into a list. So I'd often give my, my top five of whatever it was. It was sometimes top tens, but, uh, and I often got criticized for, for a lot of my lists, mostly the, my TV show list, which is, and I've said, I said this in, in our, on our grand final day, I did get a bit of support for that list from some people. They just didn't want to voice it over text message or <laughs> via Twitter. So, um, yeah, it was it was fun but challenging as well. Like some weeks, I just was a bit stumped. I think I texted yourself on a few occasions and said, "Give me something to come up with." <laughs> I uh, hope I was helpful. With, yeah, yeah, no, you're helpful. But <laughs> in early days, I was like, I don't know, I was a little bit vague on how I should like structure. I know, like Matthew obviously does a coach's corner where you know teaching philosophies or um, you know it's it's more of a basically from his coaching coaching background and and what he does now. Um, working with organisations, he could draw on a lot of that stuff as as his content. Whereas, hello, hello, to get to know me. I, I think I got most of my personal stuff out in the first five weeks because I'm a fairly straight up and down person. <laughs> um, it was just yeah, coming up with with the content to fill it after that. I guess the the greatest validation of the segment itself for me came just before State of Origin two, where. Andrew had to do a TV cross beforehand, and there are a couple of old TV journos, Neil Breen and Jim Wilson uh, from Channel 9 and Channel 7, and we're having a bit of a chat to them, and they said, what about that Hello Hallatow segment? How good. First of all, you're sort of listening in and you're thinking, geez, what a crap idea that is, and then all of a sudden you start agreeing with him, and then you're just like, hey, this is a really good segment. <laughs> so for me, that was just like... We're reaching people here. Yeah, and I did get that from a few people. Like, actually, when we went to the city country game out, out at Mudgee, um, I bumped into a, a, an old acquaintance. He, he now lives out there and has his wife has a shop, and I walked into their shop. And um, he said to me, he goes, oh, we work out in the mines, man, a few of the boys, and we listen every week on a Sunday to the show. Hello, hello, Tao, he pointed at me, and I was just going, oh, yeah, sweet. So, um, you know, it was nice that it got, it got picked up and people enjoyed it and, um, I think that's what when when the list sort of turned into the weekly thing. I guess people were just saying, "Well, no, I wouldn't have that in my list." I'd, or maybe they'd sit there and just write down their own list, you know, and um, just give them a chance to to reflect on their own their own uh, tastes in movies, music, TV shows, whatever it was. Did that then turn the 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 light on, or, or did you then become aware that hang on, actually, people are listening to what I'm saying and like regurgitating, you know, certain sections of the the radio show. Like to me, that would sort of seem weird, but also fun and rewarding at the same time. It was. And and that was something that Bobcat said to me before the season kicked off. He goes, you'd be amazed at the reach that this show has, like that that ABC Grandstand has, because a lot of regional areas and that they get ABC on above everything else. So um, he said he's got mates everywhere that can't, can't listen to anything but ABC, and that's not a, a negative thing. It's just that that's what people listen to because it's got the best reach. So um, when people would would say that to me, that um, yeah, we listen listen to the show, you're doing well or whatever it is. Listen to Hello Hello Tower, like it was a good buzz. It was it was fun, and 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 I'll put my hand up and say that I didn't listen to much radio as as a football player when I was um, playing footy, but I didn't watch a lot of footy as well. So. Um, I just never really tuned into to much of anything to do with footy because I was too busy worrying about my own game and my own team. And um, 
it's nice that I've finished. I actually, I get in the car. My wife has a bit of a laugh because she gets in and my car's on AM radio a lot of the time and, um, or I'm digital. Now we've got digital in the car, which is good. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, she has a bit of a chuckle that, uh, it's not on one of the pop music stations or whatever that her and the kids love to listen to. The nickname, the shop <laughs> sort of took on a life of its own after Matthew Elliott coined you that early days. How does that sort of sit with you? No, that was fun. It was, it was good. It was a fairly nice part, like nice way to be initiated into the group, I guess, if you get a nickname. Um, and then this is something that I, a former player, a teammate of mine said, if you're not getting ripped or mocked or whatever in a group setting, then you're not part of the group, right? So like it's a kind of a weird, a weird thing. If, if you get paid out on, it means that you're, you're well liked. It's an endearing thing. So for Maddie to put together two nicknames that I'd actually didn't like, into one nickname. So come from Topper and it came from Shrugsy. They were, they were two nicknames that he combined to make the shop. And um, Because Aaron Woods alluded to yeah. that early doors and it was in the intro every week. Yeah, he gave he gave up he gave up these nicknames that I hated. I don't know why, but I've had about forty nicknames in my life and, and this was before even Matthew Elliott. So um yeah, that did take a take on a life of its own. It was a combination of two nicknames I didn't like at all. Um, but it was it was good fun and then as I'm known in, in the ABC team, in our team, I'm known as the shop and nothing else. So <laughs> no one else outside of them like, calls me that. They call me Dano or Hullo or even around the, the Tigers boys, I get topper occasionally, but that's kind of died off now. Um, oh, no, it hasn't. Chris Heinington still calls you topper. Yeah, I know. He does that when he's on air because he knows he'll get a rise <laughs> out of you guys for it. But um, I still get – yeah, Hullo's probably the one that sticks, but yeah, that, that doesn't, doesn't fit on radio. <laughs> What I want to do is I want to sort of throw the commentary team at you and I want to get your thoughts and what you learnt from them, I guess, from a, a broadcasting point of view, yeah, okay. like or from a, a radio point of view and, and, and how you sort of managed to, I guess, develop over the years. So if I say Andrew Moore, what do you, um, what's your response to that? I just He's so good. He just flows. Everything flows. And, and obviously he's a... An experienced caller, so he's he's got that that ability anyway to be able to call things on the run. To and he corrects himself if he, if he makes a mistake, and he doesn't make many. But if he makes a mistake, he corrects himself for it like really quickly. Um, and he, so he's really aware of it, and he gets back into the game um, straight off the back of it really quickly as well. So I know that if I made a mistake, I was rattled for a little bit, and I found it hard to jump back into where I was at. So. Um, just he's just the ultimate at, at at seeing things and just keeping up with the players so fast at, at it and um, picking up a program the day of the game for some for some games we called where he didn't know three quarters of the people on the field and to be able to call that game and what I could see it as the game was going he became more and more familiar with who he was the names he was putting to the bodies and then all of a sudden he's just it's amazing isn't he's it? just calling it it's unbelievable like and. And, and and again, going back to talking to people on the street that listen to the show, and and their first their first comment is how good Andrew Moore is as a caller. You know, they love listening listen to Andrew Moore. So no doubt he's got his his following of his own that just that'll that'll follow him wherever he wherever he's calling the game. I guess the other thing that that listeners won't see, and I'll sort of I'll bring a bit of an, an insight into to things here as well. Not only is he calling the game and controlling things from a, I guess if you sort of want to reduce it to a, a comparison thing. He's like the captain of the ship, right? Yep. So if people are falling overboard, he's got to try and drag them back. If, you know, something's happening with the 
the mast or the sail, he's fixing that at the same time. So reading text messages off a laptop, reading text messages from me from the sideline about something that may have happened downstairs that he needs to know straight away, reading tweets while calling a game of football. Like, it's not an easy thing to do. And also continually talking for an 80-minute game. It's yeah. not a skill a whole lot of people have. No, and, and I don't know, you probably... He probably did get sick at times through the year, but you wouldn't have known it, known it at all with any of the calls. Like he, as soon as he's on, he's on. Like he gets, obviously he gets into his game, his game mode, and bang, he's just on, and, and it all flows. And um, it was like for me, for my first year having a go at, at this, it was really comforting to be with a guy that was so professional and and so good, but also had a had a good time doing it. Um, and also one one other thing I noticed is that when we interviewed people around times when there was stuff going on in the game controversial points or whatever he was always really respectful like he knew he had to ask questions to get answers on 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 things that were probably a bit uncomfortable for the who were interviewing but he was always he always did it in a really respectful way um he never went too hard at anyone he stuck up for the game on a couple of occasions like where people would callers would ring up and tear shreds off the game and and he went to bat for the game very hard and you know obviously he's he's got an opinion on how things run at at some times and and it it might not be on the same page as myself or Maddie or, or Bobcat or Rowan, whoever it is that's, that's calling with him. Um, but he's got a, he's got a definite love for the game and, and he cares about the game. So, you know, I, I really respect him for that. Andrew described Matthew Elliott after his first season on ABC Grandstand as pleasantly weird. How would you describe him? <laughs> Matthew Elliott, yeah, well, he is. And I said that um, after after my last top five, one of the things I liked, loved about about calling this year was spending some time with um, with Matty and and only ever knowing him as as an opposition coach. He, he was he's a bit outside the box. He's a bit quirky. I know one of his former players really well, um, Tim Grant. I spent some time with him at the Tigers, and Timmy's a massive fan of Matty. And, and before I started working, I just was um, talking to Timmy, saying how I was going to be doing this radio gig. Matty Elliott's on there with Andrew Moore, and he goes, "Oh, he goes, Matty's one of my coaches. He goes, I love him. He's he goes, he was thinking about things." 10 years ago that are now common practice in the game. But back then, it was outside the box. It was too weird. People didn't want to buy into it because they didn't know anything about it. But now it's common practice in the game. So it just shows that he that he, he was an innovator. And, and the things, the weirdness about him, it's, it's I think it's just a level of intelligence. And I've spoken to, again, people listen to the show and they say, well, Matty Elliott comes up with some weird stuff sometimes. I said, because he's... Because he's actually a really intelligent guy and he thinks outside the box quite a bit. I, I loved chatting to him on air and off air about different things, about different coaching philosophies, life philosophies, um, business philosophies, because he's so well versed in, in anything, um, business, team mind, like, you know, team minded sort of stuff. So, and, 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 and also in my role in well-being education, like he's got a good understanding of mental health and, um, a, a lot of concepts that he sort of comes up with are about helping people that are having you know mental health difficulties and and that's something that i'm quite passionate about as well and can pick his brain all day about about anything really i was going to say that to you it would align very much with what you do in terms of well-being and education matt being very much a strong advocate for players and he's often described what you guys do throughout an nrl career in terms of what you learn regarding nutrition regarding 
the exercise programs that you do as doing a, a PhD. And he, I sort of was taken aback the first time I heard that. And then I thought about it a little bit more. I'm just like, you know what? They actually do. like, and, and a part of it is also, you know, being interviewed after games and before games and, you know, public speaking with a lot of people fear that type of thing in everyday life. And I had a chat to Matt before the start of the season just in regards to my own personal development and what I wanted to get out of the year because we had a, another child coming and I knew my workload was going to increase through from March through to October. And I just wanted to get some idea or some some help in terms of how I could manage it myself with dealing with my family life and dealing with my work life and having it all fit into to play. So I found him really helpful in that that regard. Yeah, definitely. And and the thing he said, like saying that rugby league is like getting a PhD. So a PhD or a doctorate or whatever someone tries to it, that 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 high level of academic achievement that someone goes for is because they're experts in the field, right? So they've got this base level and they go, well, no, these guys are experts and they're going to study and they're going to do, get further uh, qualifications and they get their, their PhD, whatever it is. And, and, and rugby league is that. Rugby league is an elite level of a sport, right? And the guys, dedic- the guys that play the game dedicate so much time um, to perfecting their own skills and to becoming this elite player that he's right in saying that by the, by the end of a, a 10-year career, there's, there's almost like a... A PhD that should go along with you out the door, and and there's there's transferable skills. I think that he that he's alluding to is is what um, some players kind of neglect. They don't they don't think too much about it. They don't realise that um, every weekend they're going out in the field with sixteen other guys. Well, twelve on the field and, and, and the guys on the bench, but there's sixteen other guys with them that go out in the field, and things are happening so fast. So um, play one of the most dynamic the most intense, most physically demanding games in the world. Um, and, and, and for 80 minutes of a week, they're asked to make decisions like that, bang, bang, bang. They've got to react and communicate with the other 12 guys around them on the field. They've got to react to the other 13 guys opposite them and what they're doing. Um, you've got to constantly uh, read what's happening in front of you and then adapt and then try and try and win a game of football. So there's so much going on. There's so many um, skills that the players develop through the years of playing football that – People in, in, in corporate land or people in the working world would kill for those sort of attributes that players develop. And um, I think players don't really realise that's what they're doing every week. So, and, and, and no doubt that's what Matty sees in, in the players that he's, that he's coached over the years and helped develop into, into really good quality elite footballers so that they've got those qualities that, that really transfer over post-footy. Andrew Ryan was a, a teammate of yours at, at Canterbury, your captain. At, at the club there, what does he bring to the table in the broadcast sense? Nice. Like I just, I just like look at him like as a, as you mentioned before, as a, as a Canterbury fan and as someone who has uh, family links to Dubbo, he's completely different to what I used to see on the football field. Yeah, look, I, I, I love Bobcat. I, I, um, I played two seasons with Bobcat. First season I got to the Bulldogs, I was um, injured for most of the year. I only played like five or six games, I think, in, in first grade, and that was a, a tough time for me. But as a skipper, he was always really respectful. I played against him a lot. I'd still bring up to him now. There was one game when I played against him. It would have been 2005 or six. I don't know. It would have been around those, maybe even earlier, where he took a one-up 
run off a tap or something near a line and step me and scored like straight past me just made me look stupid and I always bring it up to him it was, I think it was a left foot step just gassed me and so I always really respected him after that moment I just had him in my head all the time it was like this is a guy that I'm gonna have to be up for to play against and then I got the, the chance to play with him and just meeting him thinking what a what a champion bloke you know like he gives so much of his time to other people he's a care he was a caring skipper he cared about his team um, but his actions on the field you just followed him as a leader and then as as a as a co-commentator that was in that again going back to that game in Newcastle the the first game having his voice up in the box and hearing that for the first time when I was down the side made me really comfortable so um that was that was really good and then his his commentating he he, he goes up real high like he's got he's, he changes his level so well like and he just gets really he's um, got gears like he's got it's a really hard skill to develop as a broadcaster, but Bobcat, I'm astounded by. He can if Andrew Moore goes up, Bobcat's up with him. If there's a joke to be had, he's there. Yeah. If it's like a little bit more serious, he's serious. And then he's also got this wonderful recall without replays yeah. sometimes or most of the time to know five and six passes before a play. Yeah can recall it instantly. Not a lot of guys can do that. And he's got an immense skill in the like the broadcasting area, I think. And that's I guess why he was a skipper of his team, because he because he actually understands the game really well. Like he's a football he's a football person. Um, why he works in the game so much. He's got his he's got his fingers in a lot of pies, you know, like he's he's doing so much in the game and around the game. Um but yeah, just his his ability to to, to be up and, and down when he had to be as in serious when he had to be and then just, just a tie-in with Maddie on on a lot of things to. to it's a bit of weirdness going on there too. Yeah, to get really weird and and, and quirky and and challenge Maury a lot. Like that was uh, that was really good to listen to and and to to be alongside. So, um, I actually, I don't often pay a lot of attention to to Bobcat in his calls, so I could try and pick up some things because that was something that I struggled with. With, with the call was just the levels like going up and down and and, and trying to feel feel the energy of what was happening, um, and, and then also. He um that recall you talk about like he, he's really um he's really good at, good at building on points you know like he can he does go back into a lot of depth on on something that's just happened and 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 he builds a, a nice picture of of what's just happened so um, obviously going back to just his, his ability to to read things as a footballer. I also think something and I, I will have a discussion with him about is because he's a little bit more in terms of out of the game since his retirement. Over the twelve last 12 months, I've really noticed that he's become a whole lot more vociferous in his opinions as well, which I think is a really good thing, like in terms of he, he will call a spade a spade now, whereas perhaps um, two years ago or three years ago, he'd struggle with that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah I guess um, the, the further you get away from, from your playing career, you, your relationships drop away in the game. Not relationships but those closer ties um, drop away a bit so you don't you're not speaking about players that you either trained with as a youngster coming through or a, um, or a player that you played with is less on the field so you probably got less of a, an emotional attachment to players that you want to protect them at times I guess and, and be a bit nicer to them so um, but I still think he, he he still balanced it well of, of calling it what it was but not being overly overly critical on a player to you know to cause them any distress or their family any distress listening at home. <laughs> Ruan Sims, as I mentioned before, she came on board with us this year. Someone who I'm 
super impressed with the way she handled things in her first season. One of the things that Andrew and I discussed before bringing her on board was we just didn't want her to be the token female. Yep. And she's anything but. Her opinions and her ability to partake in the, the pre-game shows as well as the stuff that she do, does on the sideline is also exceptional. Yeah, I, I had a little bit to do with Rowan before um, we both started on, on grandstand. So she was uh, – I, I, I and I'm, I'm talking through through the NRL, there was a few um, promos that I went to where she spoke and listening to her speak at the promo, I was super impressed by the way she spoke at, um, at a couple of these things I, I went to and um, knowing that she was – obviously knowing that she was a Jillaroo and, um, you know, the sister of, of the Sims boys uh, – I had an idea of her as a as a, a football person before that, but then listening to her articulate herself up in front of, um, you know, some of the game's top administrators, some government people, and and just how comfortable she was there, I was really impressed by her. And then listening to calls, I'd often be in the car, like I said, the car now on AM quite often, and, and listening to the rest of the team go on a Saturday afternoon when I wasn't on, and um, she offers so much. Football inside as well, and being a being a player, I listen to a lot of the way she talks about the game. It's the coaching points. Like she talks a lot about different ways of um, like attacking structure, different uh, defensive techniques, and and defensive structures as well. She and knows she, her stuff. She's really specific on it, and and I, and and I'm listening. Oh, she she knows her stuff really well. You know, like she's again a football brain. She knows the game. She's a student of the game, and she gets a chance to to share that with everyone when she does her calls. So. Um, Going back again to the people that I bump into the street that listen to the game, they wrap her up as well about her contribution. My mates that um, that I grew up with and they're massive, they've got the biggest opinions on anything. These guys that I went to school with and they'll um, they'll often say how impressive she's been as well as a commentator. So um, I didn't get to work a lot alongside Ruan, but uh, really impressed by by what she brought to the to the grandstand team. Now, when I'm not annoying you on the sideline on on Friday nights, you had the pleasure of. Probably the man who's got one of the biggest heads in radio, if not the world, Corbin Middlemass. How did you find working with Corby? Yeah, Corby was good. eh? he was. Um, it's 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 impressive that he has only really picked the game up, you know, in a few years. And uh, again, like just I get work in this space and, and getting to experience different different callers. And, and when he takes the lead, and I, I was lucky enough to share a couple of games with him as a lead commentator, and. Um, just just flows for a guy that hasn't grown up playing the game, you know, supporting the game or being a, a real student of the game. He's just seems like he's got a real thirst to learn, and uh, his calls are really impressive. And then down on the sideline, he was, he was lots of fun when you weren't there, and I wasn't hitting you; I was just <laughs> hitting him. I remember, I remember one of the games we had at uh, Brookvale Oval where it was pouring down rain, and I went down there with this gigantic umbrella. And he had this little one that wouldn't have covered his earlobes, his ears. And uh, he was sa- he was saturated from head to toe, and I was nice and dry under my big umbrella. But uh, he had a big smile on his face the whole time. And um, yeah, it was it was good fun getting to know Corby. And uh, I actually really want to get out to some AFL games. I've never ever been to a live AFL game. Um, right. Obviously, grown up in Sydney, but never been to one. So. Or next year, I might make it a, a point to, to try and get out to a few AFL games and maybe just sit in the box behind him and, and watch and watch him do his work there as well. And you would have had a, a little bit to do with Johnny Gibbs as well. And I'll 
sort of pro. You probably would have been interviewed by him several times for over the, the course of, of your career. He's someone that has managed to be um, a real integral part of our group in terms of if anyone's sort of sick or if we need anybody for a last-minute call-up, he's the guy we sort of bring on, on board and he's been really valuable in the sense that been part of our, I guess, second team with Corbin and be able to sort of nurture him as a, as a broadcaster as well. Look, the one thing I noticed about Gibbs is he turns up to games prepared. So he comes with a, a stack of notes. Um, he's got – I was talking earlier about having some real – Unique, uh, stats or different, different things to talk about that probably other people wouldn't know or, or talk about elsewhere. He, um, he comes really prepared to games. And then when I worked with, with him and I was on the sideline, he was really good at throwing down to me and bringing me into the conversation at different times and, and making sure that I was comfortable and that he was getting, well, well those guys, both the guys upstairs were getting something out of me. So I, I appreciate that he did that for me. And, um, again, he just, he's been around the game for so long. He knows the game. Um, and he's got a real respect for, for how the game's played as well. So um, preparation man there, he was very prepared. And I was going to say, um, who's the best producer you've worked with and, and why am I? <laughs> Ralph Tucker, <laughs> the man. Uh, we, had, we had a lot of fun this year. We did like. have a lot of fun and, and I, I touched on it earlier on, but you're just really good. I could always ask you a question um, of, of what I was doing wrong or what I needed to do better and um, just guiding me around and, and – not holding my hand, but <laughs> but giving me giving me the guidance I needed. I I knew I could um I could reach out to you if I needed to to get some um to get a bit of clarification over things. You offered me some some decent feedback, and you gave me some good support. Um, you know, looking next year, if I said something that made a good point, you gave me a thumbs up. Uh, if I knew I said something wrong, and I put my head in my my head in my hands and shook my head, you'd pat me on the back, or you know, you'd, you'd make me feel comfortable that it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. So, um. <laughs> Yeah, mate, you did a great job at, at rallying the team together and making sure that everything was organised. It was a big team to, to deal with over four games on a weekend. So um, just being able to, to manage that and, and obviously you're very passionate about about what you do. You can tell you're really driven and um, you want to make sure that the show provides the best um, the best listening experience. So uh, kudos to you, mate. Now, I want to just touch on your, your role as wellbeing and education with the, the NRL. It's obviously, you mentioned passion there. It's something that you're very passionate about. What are the, the challenges that the players face in, in that regard? And what do you actually do to assist them? I guess, first of all, become better people and then better players. Yeah. So that, that's a line that's, to, that's tossed out, um, quite a bit that I've, I've heard quite a bit. And it's not just said because like we want the players, to be, to be better for playing the game. You know, I've heard Todd Greenberg say that, but it's not been said just to make everyone happy to say that they think that we're in here doing things that are going to make the players better. Um, we're actually, we're very practical in, in, in how we go about it, I guess. Um, and, and you're right. There's a lot of challenges that players face. You know, the list is very long, but, um, I guess being a recently retired player, I think the best indicator of how well we do as a department and as a game in supporting players through their careers how well they they move out of the game because um, while you're in the game, it's very comfortable. You're surrounded by people that love football and that play football and um, or people that support the game and, and, and do everything they can to make you the best player you can and, and you just do as much um, as you can with that. Um, but when you finish the game, it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a shock to go out of – 
this team environment that you've become very accustomed to from a very young age. Like I, I played footy as a six-year-old and I retired as a, a 33-year-old. So, or a thir- yeah, 33-year-old. So um, that's a long part of my life to be doing the one thing year in, year out. So for, for me, it's about giving the, giving the players the best platform so that they can develop while they play the game with their off-field engagement, with things off the field so that the, the transition out of the game is smooth. It's always going to be hard. I don't think you're going to find a player that hasn't finished a game of rugby league and not missed it at one point or, you know, felt a little bit sad at one point or many points uh, for not playing the game anymore. So the, the more prepared we can we can have a player in terms of what they go to after football, how well they, they deal with their transition, then that's probably where my passion is in, in working in this space. And Andrew Ryan, who now works with, you know, a lot of the retired players from naught to five years, that's that's, you know, basically his... Um, his job description, you know, he'll tell you that majority of the boys have periods after, after they finish football where they feel a little bit lost at times. And, um, I know as I left the game, like I, I thought I had it all sussed. I had work lined up. Emotionally, I was going to be fine. And then I'll just land out of football, be successful and happy days. But there were still challenges and, and they were just little ones of not being around my teammates every day, not, Training every day and feeling healthy and, and on top of things and um, not not having <coughs> excuse me not having my my week laid out for me having to find another routine and a and a schedule to fit to that I had to create that myself. Whereas as a player, you turn up on Monday morning with your kid on and you're ready to go and the the trainer comes up to you and goes, "Here's your schedule for the week. Do this," and you just go, "Okay, I'm going to do that as best I can." So yeah, I guess the long and short of it is to, to help prepare players for that transition into whatever it is after football so it's smooth and, and as as comfortable as possible for them. One of the things that you did mention that really resonated with me a couple of weeks ago that I, to be honest, didn't really even think about was that when you step out of the game, you don't have your healthcare immediately looked <laughs> after. And if you, you were sponsored by a certain shoe company, you don't get that stuff anymore. You, your fitness levels, as you mentioned, you pretty much schedule around the clock to do that but also it's not only doing the the fitness work and having the time allocated to do that but it's the specific time allocated for recovery which is a a big part of being a professional athlete these days you know the massages you now have to pay for yourself and all of those kind of things that you would have as a as an elite player taken for granted I guess and then all of a sudden you decide to hang up the boots and you're forced to fend for yourself like a regular everyday Joe. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's. I guess that's one of the things that that players have to that we sort of make players aware of the fact that when you finish the game, um, one, you're probably going to come down in income um, for a lot of the boys now that are on whatever they're on because the money that's getting thrown around at the moment is ridiculous. But most players will finish the game and, and their income will go down, but the expenses go up. So having to to adjust to that is, is a big thing. Yeah, the healthcare that you mentioned, um, there is there is a support up to $2,500 of, of healthcare coverance for the um, ensuing months after you finish. So, it, again, that depends. If you're on if you're on a family cover that costs three or 500 bucks a month, the two and a half grand is only going to go a portion of the year. It's not going to cover the whole year, and then you have to pick it up yourself. Um, the footwear, the clothing, some players will be lucky that they'll have – Good relationships with those people that have that have lasted, and they might have profile enough where they still get that. But most boys will 
not be getting free trainers, free boots. You have to go out and buy your own kit, which everyone has to do. So that's fine. That's just part of life. Um, but, but there are adjustments that you have to make, um, that you're probably not prepared for. A lot of players might use their managers to do their, their tax and, and, and whatnot. Um, they just throw everything at them and say, can you get our accountant to look at that and make sure that I'm, I'm all sweet for my tax returns and, and whatnot. So players, when they finish, need to have just a bit of an understanding of that. Or if they have to go to their accountant themselves with all their information, how do they go about doing that? Um, there's a whole there's a whole range of things that, that players have to face when they finish. That maybe they're not babied through their football career, but they've just had the opportunity to get it done f- for them by by the support people around around the game. We'll wrap it up in a, a sec, but I just want to get your final thoughts. Um, just in terms of you played 249 first grade games in the NRL. You played 15 tests for New Zealand. There wouldn't be a player in the game that would have a bad word to say about you. What would you like people to think when they think Dean Hallatow? That's a hard one, eh? Look, I guess um, if if you as a player, you just want to be a player that the other other guys want to play with, um, and and I know that the guys I play with enjoy playing with me, um, so I'm I'm comfortable in the fact that I was a good teammate to my other teammates which was really important to me um as as a player but just in general like um I, f- I feel like i've got a lot of empathy for people like i don't i try not to be too judgmental of people and um there's always there's always a backstory to, to someone um so i try and have a lot of empathy for people so like I, I may have said this in one of my my list but it's it's nice to be important but it's more important to be nice you know and the old saying, nice guys finish last. So I don't really care about that. Like, I just, I just want to be a decent person and, and be known as a decent person. And I think if, if, if that's what people think of me, just as a decent bloke or a decent person, then, then I'll be happy. You know, that's, that's kind of, yeah, what, what sits with me. <laughs> well, and how would Dean Hallatow sum up Dean Hallatow's first year as a commentator with ABC Grandstand? <laughs> Oh, look, I think, um, I think I had some pretty good moments. I think there was times, and, and I'll go back to being a, a, my own worst critic. There was times when I struggled and, but I felt like I, I had a good year. It was really enjoyable. I hope that I provided a, the right amount of, uh, football insight, but also, uh, fun and, and, and good, good content for you guys as a, as a show. I, I hope that I did that. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll give myself a above average pass. <laughs> I'll give you more than an above average, mate. Dean Hallatow, thanks very much for your time. Ralphie, thanks very much, mate. Enjoyed it. There he is, Dean Hallatow. And if you want to let Dean know that you heard the podcast, please send him a tweet. He's at Dean Hallatow. You can also send us a tweet, which is at MediaMatesAU, or check out the Facebook page. Please head along to iTunes and leave us a review or Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called these days. Um, It really helps other people find the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast. Podcast.